0: Just to reiterate, you know, God's wish God's blessing upon each and every one of your lives in this uh, coming challenging year, that God has been faithful in 2021. He's not going to change and be unfaithful so we can go forward with that confidence that he's going to continue to be our blessing. And uh, I believe this is picking up on uh, a study that was commenced uh, last year and then broken off for the period of uh, december and we're re-engaging with this uh, great uh, book the seedbed as it were of the great truths which flower through the old and new testament and we're in chapter nine uh, this morning and it's really uh thinking in terms of uh, the technology today it's god's reboot of the Planet. Remember back in chapter 6 and verses 5 through 8 there that such was the degradation of mankind that God decided that he was sorry. It says, The Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And as a result, it says, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. And then in verse 11 he goes on and says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Noah is now over five hundred years old when God instructs him to build the ark in preparation for the coming flood. He's six hundred years in uh, chapter seven, verse six. Six hundred years old when he enters the ark and the flood begins and Noah and his family with all the animals he took with him here were the only survivors and through them God is going to carry out his plan for the future of the planet. I know there are those skeptics who you know question whether there really was a, a, a flood But for me the the words of Jesus confirm what Genesis accurately records in Luke 17 verse 27. Jesus says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. The words faithful and true of our Lord Jesus Christ. So looking at the passage there, it divides nicely into two sections, verses 1 to 7, speaks of a new commencement, and then in verses 8 to 17, we have a new covenant. And God prescribes for Noah what will be the nature of life with this new beginning. And there's much here that's reminiscent of the creation story in the early chapters of Genesis. Man is still Created in the image of God, we see that in verse 6. Man is to populate the earth, we read that again in chapter 9 and verse 1. And then man is to rule over the animal kingdom, just as Adam was told to do in Genesis. But at the same time, as with Adam's sin, there was a, a consequence that led to a change in his environment through the fall. So there are consequences of God's flood judgment that would lead to change and to a new order in the world that Noah and his family were to live in. Both Adam and Eve and his family were the recipients of God's blessing. We read that God blessed them and here God blessed Noah and his sons. Again, both Adam and Noah here received God's command. Be fruitful and fill the earth. Noah's family were to repopulate the earth. But whereas Adam's relationship to the animal world and dominion over it was free of fear, here in Noah's world all the animals would be fearful of man. In Adam's world man's diet was from plants and trees and at that time we read In Genesis 1 verse 30 that all the animals were herbivores but the cataclysmic changes subsequent to the flood led to God making changes to man's diet and to the provision of meat. Verse 3 says every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. It's not clear from the text why God now sanctions the use of animals for food. It may have been that due to the changes in the environment, uh, the rigors of a new challenging environment, that man's need of protein would only be met from animal sources. It certainly would have taught man that there was a distinction between animal life and human life. Animals could be killed for food. But anybody or any animal that took a human life was to be punished by the loss of his own life. Verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from every man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. At this time there were no restrictions as to which animals man could eat. When God entered into his special covenant relationship with Israel at Sinai, there were only certain animals that could be eaten, those that were deemed Uh, to be clean again after the church and the question comes up in uh, acts 15 again we were free to eat anything the dietary restrictions that had been uh, on the jews were lifted and again we were free to eat of every moving thing that lives and i suppose there's no accounting for people's taste in, in in food I remember uh, one day when I was living in in, in Senegal that my um, neighbour Louis de Mani uh, came and he brought this arm uh, with the skin missing and I looked at that and then carefully looked and I could see that the hand was that which I guess to be a chimpanzee. So I, 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 I wasn't too shocked or horrified. But despite all my efforts to cook it and pressure cook it and so on, it was still like chewing elastic bands. <laughs> <coughs> I remember when we were, went to France for a time and we were down in the south of France in a Christian centre called Loviv, and uh, uh, we were trying to pick up some French. and I remember sitting down at Sunday lunch one time and there was a casserole of, of rabbit that was put out for us and this young lady opposite me uh, handed me the casserole and urged me to take the rabbit's head, the skull. And I thought, that is the last bit of the rabbit that that I I fancy. And so I took another piece that I recognized and and put it on my plate and handed the casserole back to her. And she immediately took the, the rabbit's head she put a finger over one of the orbits of the rabbit, put a mouth around the other side of the other orbit, and <sniffs> sucked out the brains of the rabbit. And I discovered afterwards this was really quite a delicacy uh, in, in, in France. And I suppose over the time I, I lived in Africa, and I got used to all kinds of eating all kinds of different things to my normal diet here. Uh, agouti, a type of water rat. Remember somebody giving me a, a steak of hippopotamus? Um, I remember one time being in Thailand and being given you know, this bowl of, uh, of pork fat to eat and I thought, oh, that really was a struggle. Or um, I remember when we were out doing this project and all of a sudden certain big beetles emerged from the ground and everybody rushed after these beetles as a delicacy. Often in uh, Ivory Coast when it was the time for the termites to come out of the ground and they would look for any area of light and the light outside our house they would attack and they would all drop to the ground and lose their leaves and our neighbors would come along and sweep up the termites then and dip them in the hot oil and uh, and eat them again a very nutritious source of, uh, of, of protein. I don't know what your tastes are in food but God says there that with this permission to eat animal flesh, there was also a restriction with it. Verse 4 says you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood in it. The flesh was given for meat, but blood was given for sacrifice. And this truth would be further developed and explained with God's unfolding revelation. In Leviticus 3.17, it says that it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations, in all your dwelling places, that you eat neither fat nor blood. In Leviticus 17 verse 11, it says that, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. But it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. It's interesting that the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 and the question arose there as to what the Gentiles needed to observe as the Jews were insisting that the Gentiles should observe all the aspects of the Mosaic law. And the conclusion of the discussions there of the apostles in Acts 15, 28 and 29 says, For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled. Now blood to know today we know is the river of life, basically, in our bodies. transports the nutrients, it transports the oxygen to all the body's cells to maintain life and the consciousness, both in humans and in animals. And it is that conscious life that in the Old Testament word, the Hebrew word is uh, nefesh, which is variously translated as life or soul. And it is that that distinguishes animal life uh, from plant life. That life here is taught as being sacred. Yes, man is now free to kill and to eat animals, but he mustn't eat the blood. He mustn't eat any meat where the blood hasn't been bled from the animal. You see, the life an animal. Its blood offered on a sacrificial altar by a believing man or woman was accepted by God as the substitute death for the offerer by God. The offerer, he comes as a guilty sinner deserving of death. He brought his animal sacrifice He laid His hands on it, identifying Himself with that animal, that He deserved to die. But in His place, this animal would be sacrificed, its blood would shed, his sin was transferred and this animal was His substitute. This was obviously a picture to teach us of what God was planning through the future of His Son, the Lord Jesus. He who would be the God-given lamb. He who would die on the cross as our substitute. The one who would pay the debt of our sin. The one who would suffer the consequences of all our wrongdoing. And his shed blood was the price that was paid for our salvation, our forgiveness. Our sins, of course, are totally and permanently removed, as we read of in uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 10. It says that the law, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Then in verse 11, it says that every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ... Had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and so for those thousands of years that these sacrifices these blood offerings were made they finally came to an end. And the picture was fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ as he hung from that cross at Calvary and dealt with the problem of our sin. Have you trusted in what Jesus has done as your personal substitute, your personal saviour? Is he the one that you are counting of when that day comes, when we're called into his presence? It's not anything that I have done but holy what Jesus has accomplished on my behalf. It is in him whom I am trusting for that time, that day of acceptance when God calls me to himself. So here man's blood again represents his life and it was even more sacred than that of animals. For this reason, it says here in verse uh, 6 there that God made man in his own image. Though animals also have a body and they experience soulish life with man, it is only those who have an eternal spirit and the capacity to know God and experience a relationship with God that has this level of life this sanctity of life which god says anyone who takes one's life his life must also be taken any animal or man who takes a life it says that in verse 5 and for your blood i will require a reckoning from every beast i will require it and from every man from his fellow man i will require a reckoning for the life of man now that word Require there is a judicial term. And God as judge requires that a life taken. Will be punished by the offender's life being taken. Whereas prior to the flood. Life was characterized by an earth that was filled with violence. It said there of uh, Cain. Rose up against his brother and killed him. It says there of Lamech in chapter 4 and verse 24 I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And we see here that there seems to be no formal prescribed mechanism for the punishment of crime. It was a little law of the jungle and chaos existed. And to prevent the development and continuous of such behaviour in society, God makes man responsible to enact justice. He is spelled out for the crime of murder. Whoever sheds the blood of a man by man shall his blood be shed. And this simple instruction to Noah is the fundal, fundamental basis for society's establishment of legal and governmental institutions the almighty the all-knowing the uh, omnipresent god is also the all orderly god and it is by his design that society should act in accordance with righteous and godly principles and that those who act without respect and compliance for established law should face the consequences of their misconduct. Human authority is to take its role and responsibility in the exercise of divine judgment. It was a gracious act of God to preserve life and give opportunity for man to seek God to be reconciled to his maker. And this principle of justice and governance is picked up as we know in uh, Romans chapter 13 and verse 1 where the mandate is given there for authorities and that mandate of the authorities is a governance ordered by God. And verse 2 in Romans 13 talks about resisting authority, is resisting God's purposes and will lead to judgment. And verses 3 and 4 there says that only those who refuse to do what is right need fear, those authorities. It's an authority empowered by God to execute punishment against wrongdoers. We're forbidden to take the law into our own hands. Again Romans 12 verse 19 says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written vengeance is mine i will repay says the lord and the emphasis here in god's instituting of man and, and empowering with the authority and responsibility for administering law and order and justice is part of god's covenant which applies to all mankind today remember when uh, peter took the sword there uh, to, to, to defend the Lord Jesus that Jesus said to him that all who take the sword will perish by the sword. But in Romans 13 verse 4 for the judicial authorities he says he doesn't bear the sword in vain. For the judicial authorities it's their responsibility to administer justice. This prescribed order set out by God for society after the Flood has never been rescinded. That is to say that the death penalty should, that is not to say, that's right, that is not to say that the death penalty should necessarily be applied in every case of murder. Justice also needs to be tempered by God's mercy. And Where there are circumstances of genuine repentance, perhaps the death penalty need not be enacted. You think about King David who organized the death of Uriah in order that he could take his wife Bathsheba to to himself there. He suffered consequences for his uh, uh, terrible act, but yet God spared him his life as God saw David's repentance. I think of that a woman there who was taken in adultery in John 8 and according to the Mosaic law she had been stoned. The Lord Jesus said to you, I do not condemn you, go and from now on sin no more. But this does raise the question for us, is it right for society to abandon totally the death penalty? Have we trivialized the seriousness of taking somebody's life and denying him the opportunity uh, to receive Christ as Saviour? Is the purpose of justice reformation or should it be judgment and punishment? And the other serious issue raised by God's value set on the sanctity of life is the guilt of the society that legalizes the killing of unborn babies through the method of abortion when david Steele's law was passed in 1967 54 years ago it is estimated that more than 9 million unborn children have been killed in 2020 The figures there were that 210,060 unborn babies were killed through abortion and how many more through chemical abortion, I don't know. The Jews have killed more of their own in this way than the Germans did in the gas chambers. Man is not the product. Of evolution. He's not just some super developed ape, an advanced anthropoid. He is God's special created creation, created in his own image. And to suggest that a fetus is any less a human is to deny what God has said. There are persons on the way. And they only differ from us in that they are earlier in their development. We cannot justify the killing of babies for the fear of overpopulation, the shortage of uh, of food, or due to the inconvenience of our self-absorbed lives. Verse 7 again. God's prescription to Noah and his family, as with Adam and Eve, to propagate mankind, be fruitful and multiply and team or swarm on the earth and multiply in it. And from eight people here we've grown to almost 8 billion inhabitants in just over 4,000 years. So we've considered this new commencement as Noah and his family begin life Following the extinction of all flesh, the earth is to be repopulated. Man may eat animal flesh, but not the blood. There's going to be fear of man by beast. Human beings are responsible for human government, seen in the principle here of enacting capital punishment. And Noah and his family have been preserved as God's witnesses for their descendants in maintaining a true testimony to the living God. So in verses 8 to 17, here we have this new covenant uh, set out by God. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Seven times we read in these ten uh, verses the word covenant. Verses 9, 11, and 15 speaks of my covenant. This is God's covenant that he's making. In verses 12, 13 and 17 we read there of the sign of the covenant, the the rainbow. And then in verse 16 we have the everlasting covenant mentioned. This word has only previously been used once in Genesis 6 verse 18. But it is one of the great Bible words. And the Noahic covenant is the first of several covenants in the Bible that be followed by the Abrahamic covenant. The davidic uh, covenant the mosaic covenant the new covenant and this has the meaning of coming together agreement between two parties and in scripture as you look at these covenants some of these covenants are conditional there has to be agreement and the outworking of that covenant depends on the two parties fulfilling their part of the agreement But in the Noahic covenant here, we discover an unconditional uh, covenant. And verse 11 and 9 and verse 15 again emphasizes, this is my covenant. The source of the covenant is God himself. And it is wonderfully a covenant of grace. Without reference to any merit on the human uh, part. He says there in verse uh, 8 of verse 21, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. He knows the intention of man's heart isn't going to change. But he says, I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done. God himself, it's his covenant. Now the scope of the covenant in verses 9 and 10, he says it is with you and your offspring after you, the birds, the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. And so this covenant embraces both mankind and the animal kingdom of all future generations. The specific of the covenants are laid down there in verse 11. Neither human nor animal life will be subject to judgment by universal flood. Noah and his family and descendants might have feared every time they saw this new atmospheric condition and clouds and wondered if again this was a sign of total uh, destruction. That God's gracious promise assures his creation of its future. The sign of the covenant in verses 12 and 13 is I have set my bow in the cloud. And this is God's reminder and assurance of his faithfulness in spite of man's failed record. This bow between earth and heaven will remain as a constant reminder of God's faithfulness to his promise. It's interesting, you know, when you study the. Uh, Various people groups that we engage in uh, around the world and we ask them, you know, what is the significance of the bow to you? And for many of them in their culture, it's a sign that brings fear. It is an omen of some tragedy that's to occur. And again, it's amazing how the enemy of souls has twisted something, you know, which is a truth from God to encourage us into something of, of fear. The certainty of the covenant In verses 14 to 16 the world exists by God's promise I will remember my covenant and it remains in spite of the threat of climate change and global warming this world will not come to an end through our mismanagement of this world and its resources we look forward to the trump of God being sounded and and Christ coming to the air to call us to himself and forever to be with the Lord. And at his return, he will judge this world and set up his kingdom in righteousness. This is not going to end by any human uh, mismanagement of the planet. And the bow reminds us of his gracious promises. It's a sign of hope. And then the surety of the covenant in verse 17. It is certain and sure. Why? Because God said it. God said to Noah. And it's impossible for God to lie. So in conclusion, God's gracious promise to Noah, is covenant, is for Noah and all Noah's descendants, which includes us today. His promises that God will not destroy mankind or the animal kingdom by a universal flood of waters. God has given animal flesh uh, for meat to be eaten, but the blood is to be left. God has put man in dominion over the animal kingdom, and the fear of man is in the wild animals. God has made man responsible to govern society in an orderly and just way to punish evildoers. God has given the rainbow a product of sunshine and storm, but its colors remind us of the manifold grace of God. We see the grace of God manifested through his covenant promise. His blessings were to be bestowed even though nothing had been done by a man to deserve them. As Noah and his family stepped out into a new world, following this catastrophic flood, I'm sure there was uncertainty. There, there was uh, fears. There was the unknown. But he can move forward with the assurance and hope because God will always be faithful to his word and his promises. God demands no pledge of obedience in response to the covenant, but he assured Noah of his unconditional divine faithfulness to this word throughout all generations. And as we two together face a, a new year with all its uncertainties, inevitable challenges that have come, come our way, we too can face it with the confidence of God's promises that His grace is always going to be sufficient for whatever comes our way. My grace, God says, is sufficient for you. We can step forward knowing of His unconditional love for each one of His redeemed children. We can step forth. Absolutely, knowing his steadfast faithfulness can never fail. He's never failed any one of us. He's not going to start now. So let's go into this wonderful new year, thanking God for his faithfulness. Father, we want to thank you for this portion of your word that reminds us of the inevitable destruction that took place and yet a new order was set forth, and with it, your covenant promises of your companionship, your certainty, Lord, that you would bless, that we would no, never again suffer a worldwide judgment. We thank you, Lord, that this covenant is a covenant of grace, that it doesn't depend on our faithfulness, but your faithfulness. The Lord, as we step forward into this new year with many uncertainties, a lot of fear and anguish gripping men and women's hearts. Lord, we pray that you would bring to our hearts a reminder of your word here, the assurance of your faithfulness, the assurance of hope that we have through you. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.